We're going to begin with Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7. We read there, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now this is a proverb, and uh, to put it simply, proverbs are proverbial. This is a proverbial truth. God, most of the time, you can generally take it to the bank. This is the natural way God works. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, it's important to consider what has been said in this proverb. It can't come true unless you have enemies. This is not God saying when a man's ways are pleasing to him, he will make all men live at peace with him. There are still people out there who look at him and say, that's my enemy. I hate him. Um, Enemies are enemies. They dislike you. And there are certain virtues that enemies have, one of which is they can't betray you because they're enemies. That's what they do. They can't stab you in the back. They want to stab you in the front. But... The proverb says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, God will make even his enemies to be at peace with him. You have a Mordecai in Scripture. He is spoken of very highly. He is a Jew in a pagan land. He is a stranger and an alien. And yet, due to his virtue and piety, one assumes, uh, the people hold him in high regard. And he even has a high position. And generally, everyone likes him, except for Haman. And in God's providence, you end up with a conflict. But proverbially, it's still true for Mordecai as much as anyone else. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes everyone to live at peace with him, even his enemies. If it were an absolute law, if it were a law, not a proverb, then our Lord Jesus Christ would have broken it. Because we know that our Lord's ways are pleasing to his Father, he is perfectly pleasing to his Father. He is the literal definition of what is pleasing to the Father. And generally, most of the people, most of the time, did speak well of him as he walked, but he had real opposition. So you can see that it is proverbial, but it is the general way things work. Our psalm this morning is the very first psalm in the Psalter that can be described as a penitential psalm, a psalm of penitence. The word penitence is used differently depending upon who you are. If you are a Romanist, the word penance means those acts of contrition, those good deeds done in sorrow that God will accept as payment for the evil you have done. If you feel you have sinned against the Lord and you go to the priest and you make confession, then the priest will say, here is some penitence I want you to perform, and you go and do it and you kind of make the slate clean. That is not the way historic Christian theology uses the term. It is certainly not the way Protestants use the term. Uh, Penitence is a good thing. 
but it doesn't have anything to do with what your priest tells you to go do. Penitence is that sense of sorrow and contrition that you feel once you realize you have come into a place where God is angry with you and you want that to be made right. It's not the works of your hands so much, it's the attitude of your heart. You have come to the point where you look in the mirror and when you look there you see a sinner and you don't shrug your shoulders and go, well, ain't we all? You really have a sense that I am a sinner, God is holy, God's anger is upon me, and honestly, I'd like that to stop. It's, it's that attitude. And there are certain psalms in the Psalter that are psalms of penitence. They describe that attitude. And this psalm is very much one of them, and it is the first one that comes up. Because of that, the commentaries on this psalm tend to really, really heavily hit the issue of penitence. In the history of the church, the way the Christians have used it through the last 2,000 years, uh, in liturgical worship, they have combined this psalm with other psalms of penitence. They've been put into special worship services where penitence is the focus. And so penitence becomes what everybody talks about when they comment on the psalm. Um, it is a psalm of penitence, and you see that in the very first verse. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. The psalmist, David, is uh, not speaking hypothetically. His language is, I don't want you to do this, but you only really say that to God when it's actually happening. David is being punished by God, who is angry. God is, be, God is punishing his servant in displeasure. And the psalmist has come to the point where he knows that's God's current attitude to him. And he is praying, Lord, please don't let this happen anymore. Don't enter into to punishment of your servant, though I deserve it, because it is kind of required that the singer of this psalm acknowledge they deserve it. God is rightly angry, he is rightly in displeasure, but Lord, please make this situation stop. Uh, he wishes that God not be long in that state. Verse 3 says, but you, O Lord, how long? How long will I undergo your punishment? How long Will I sense your displeasure? How long will you be angry with me? Rather, in the next verse, he says what he wants to have happen. It is the petition of the, of the psalm, effectively. Return, O Lord, and deliver me. Well, the concept of returning means that there has been an estate that God has been in before, and it was a state where the psalmist felt God's blessing and his love and his compassion and his mercy all of which God still has, but the psalmist is not feeling it. God has brought him to an estate where he understands his sin. God is chastening him. God is punishing him. That is consuming his understanding. And he is crying out, Oh Lord, how long will this be? Please let our relationship return to what it was before. Deal with me in kindness. Deal with me in mercy. And 
the term for mercy, as I said, he, he is focused on the fact that God is in covenant with him. That word is utterly essential. It means, God, you have entered into a relationship with me by covenant. Uh, your anger and your displeasure doesn't change that. Uh, please remember your said, remember your mercy, and deal with me in kindness. But a question needs to be asked, exactly how does the psalmist come to realize that he is standing before a holy God who is angry and displeased with his sinful estate? You might say that it is that he has sinned, and having sinned, he is aware of his sin, and uh, that has triggered his contrition, but uh, that's not the way things usually work. As we called upon God to uh, be merciful to us, we prayed a prayer, which we often pray, and I would remind you of the words we said. Almighty Father, Lord of heaven and earth, we confess that we have sinned against you voluntarily and involuntarily. So we confess with the teaching of Scripture in general that we are uh, so prone to sin, even having been redeemed, that we don't even know when all we sin. Sometimes we are walking against the pleasure of God, and we're oblivious to it. Uh, we, we don't even feel the darkness of our steps. Almighty Father, Lord of heaven and earth, we confess that we have sinned against you voluntarily and involuntarily in thought, word, and deed, known and unknown, by day and by night. That is an accurate statement of the human condition of the saved, of the redeemed. God has redeemed us, the blood of Jesus Christ covers us, and yet we do not have the audacity, the utter arrogance of the true Wesleyan to say, God has now made me perfect and I no longer sin. Uh, Simply what the eye see clearly shows that's not the case. We remain sinners, and we are often oblivious to it. So how does David come to recognize God's displeasure? What has brought it to him? What means has God used? David had to be confronted by Nathan the prophet before he could pray Psalm 51, verse 3, where we read this. Uh, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Before Nathan confronted him, David didn't pray that. So what was it that gave him the knowledge? Well, if you uh, look through the language of this prayer, it might be possible to say David has been afflicted with a disease. Disease has the power to really stop us in our tracks and break us down. It breaks down the body, and we realize how finite we are. God shows us our mortality. And there is, there is language here that could mean that. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. 
O Lord, heal me. And he used the term healing, so that's fairly strong evidence. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. The soul is the connection of body and spirit together. Uh, But David begins by talking about his bones, which refers to the body. My body is shaking and trembling, and it works its way even to the inner man. All of me, body and spirit, my entire soul is greatly troubled. Uh, That could be disease language. It is certainly the language of a man who is under distress, both physically and inwardly. Death is possible. In verse 5, he says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? That is strong language. And it is language that has led some to interpret it as David saying, If I pass from this world, uh, there will be no praising of you in the afterlife. If I die, my lips will forever be silent. Death is the end. There is no eternal life. Some have taken the line that that's what David is saying. Even such a luminary as Charles Spurgeon, who didn't take it that way, kind of shied away from explicating it. In his Treasury of David, uh, this is what he says. And now David was in great fear of death, death temporal and perhaps death eternal. Read the passage as you will, the following verse is full of power. That is a very strange stepping away from explication for Charles Spurgeon, who is usually a very straightforward explicator. He is fantastic at at describing the Bible. But here he says, well, you know, let the reader read it as he wants to. I think we have lost sight of the relationship between death and hell. All people die. They all enter into it. But death is kind of like a gateway to hell. Hell is what death elongates into. And... Those who are redeemed by the covenant of Christ do spend at least a moment in death. Listen to the words of Psalm 16. The psalmist is celebrating the grace of Christ. God's Holy One will not be left in the ground to decay. But here is the whole passage. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, my flesh, my body. For you will not leave my soul, that is the connection of my body and spirit, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, which is the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, which is the, the comfort, which is the reason why he's not going to be left in death. You will show me the path of life, in your presence is fullness of joy, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I will not be left in death, says the psalmist, but think about that terminology. I will, in fact, taste death. My body will die. But the grace of God is such that he will reach down and draw me from it. 
Hell will not suck me in from the grave. The grave will not send me to the maw of hell. I lay in death, but God, because of his Holy One, who he will not allow to see decay, God will reach down into death. He will take hold of me. I will know the path of life. Those who stay in death, they will never praise the Lord ever again. They may have praised him in life, but it was hypocrisy. And God will not allow hypocrisy to be eternal. Those who pass into death and are sucked into hell, those who go on that journey, honestly, they will never praise God again. And Spurgeon is kind of hinting at, David is even wondering, is that me? I feel the displeasure of God. I feel his wrath. Perhaps I am not even among the elect. Perhaps I am not redeemed. Perhaps when the grave takes hold of me, it will suck me down into hell. I will never again praise my God, and he is afraid. Be that as it may, death is possible. It is possible from his stressed estate, his bodily condition. But uh, the second half of our psalm has all kinds of references to, quote, David's enemies. We begin at verse 7. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. And then as we go to the end of the psalm, they keep coming up again. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. That's effectively about half the psalm. It's not a big psalm. And suddenly we're hearing about enemies. What is the relationship of the enemy to the psalmist? Because the psalm has been so used in penitence, uh, some interpreters have said, David's talking about sin. The greatest enemy that a child of God can have is sin. He is using the enemy metaphorically to talk about the sins that have grabbed hold of him They are the real enemy, not flesh and blood, and he is bidding his sins away. There are certain passages of Scripture that that actually would be a pretty good explication of. But I'm not sure this is one of them. Because human sin would have a little hard time being ashamed. Sin is a marring of the good. It is a mutation of what God has created. It is a a wasting disease on virtue that destroys what God finds righteous. But sin is not sentient. Sin is not thinking. Sin can't repent. And clearly, David calls his enemies to be confounded and to be ashamed. So we're left with, these are flesh and blood people. Um, What is the connection between how he's feeling and the people? Martin Luther, whom I deeply, deeply respect, has a somewhat fanciful take on this, although you can kind of understand it if you know Martin Luther's life. In commenting on this psalm, he says, Psalm 6 is a psalm of prayer. 
It laments the great yet hidden suffering of the conscience when, on account of sins, one's faith and hope are tormented by the law and anger of God and driven to despair or erring faith. This suffering is called elsewhere in the Psalter, quote, the bonds of death and, quote, the ropes of hell or, quote, the misery of death and, quote, the anguish of hell. At the end of Psalm 6, the psalmist sees that his prayer has been heard. He is therefore a trustworthy example for those who find themselves in such affliction so that they may not remain in it. The psalmist rebukes the workers of evil, that is, the false saints who generally hate and persecute such afflicted people. Because their comfort is in their own holiness, they know nothing of these trials. They are therefore utter enemies of the true faith. Now you can kind of understand why Luther would view it this way, because that's what's happening to Luther, and the psalm does kind of apply to him. These are the enemies that Luther faced, and that's the way he faced them. There were churchmen who did not see themselves as sinners in need of grace. There were churchmen who thought themselves righteous by their own works, And when Luther, tormented by the sense of his sins, was driven to the Lord Christ, when he fell before a Savior and declared, I must be saved, I cannot save myself, he developed himself a pastel of enemies who said, yes, you can, and they truly did try to persecute him. Luther's experience fits within the psalm, but the psalm is a bit broader than that. The most natural reading of this is that... uh, the, the stress David is feeling, the, the bodily shaking, the inward turmoil, has been caused by these enemies. It is not that he is sick and these enemies are taking advantage of it like uh, sharks smelling blood in the water, although there are biblical passages that are like that. If you go to Psalm 35, for instance... Uh, David is in just such an estate, and there we read this in uh, verse 11 through 16. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, which seems to be a comparison to his condition in Psalm 35, I'm sick now, but they were sick then. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. That's clearly David is sick, and there's blood in the water, and enemies surround him. There's another psalm that says they would come in to visit David in his affliction. He was laying in his bed. They would talk about how much they loved him and hoped he got better, and then they'd leave and go talk to all people who hated David, and say, the guy's going to die, and that's great. But in this particular psalm, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. 
Rather, the enemies have come, and the enemies are what's causing stress. Suddenly, everywhere David looks, there is a human being who wants him hurt. There are those who want to wound him. There are those who want to, to do bodily harm to him. They have come crawling out of the woodwork like cockroaches looking for a meal. He is overwhelmed by his enemies, and the fact they are present is what God is using to get David's attention. David has sinned against God. David would be oblivious to that, probably, in his flesh. But God has sent hostile people in his providence to wake David to his estate. Enemies are everywhere. David fears for his life. He trembles in his bones. He realizes his mortality. And more than that, looking at how enemies have come from everywhere, he recognizes the God who controls all things, the God of providence, has done this. And God has stopped him in his tracks. This is a theme that also shows up in the Psalter many places. One of my favorite is Psalm 69. There in the first five verses, uh, David effectively says the same thing he's saying here. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Anybody ever felt that way? Felt that everything, what, what, they were just drowning? It came up to your neck, you're just staying above water? Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Notice the similar language between the two Psalms. Those who hate me without a cause. So these are enemies that really don't have any right to hate me. Those who are my enemies without cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. So if we stopped reading Psalm 69 at this point, we would have a picture of David being unjustly persecuted by enemies who have come in like a flood and they're threatening to kill him and he thinks he's going to drown. And we might think he's innocent. But verse 5 says... O oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. These enemies have no literal right to hate David, but they do. Most likely they hate David because he's connected to God, but God has another purpose for them. God has sent them. He has allowed hostility from the world to take place. It is not by accident. It is not as though God did not notice. God is literally the sender of all things. And these enemies don't know his sin, but God does. Why is David drowning in human hatred and anger? It's because God, not them, God knows his sin. In the presence of God's providence expressing his anger and displeasure, and to have this point of view, you have to believe the things that happen in the world come from God's hand. 
you cannot be an effective deist. You cannot believe a definition of God that comes from the Bible, but live in such a way that all things happen while he just watches. Enemies come from God's hand. Sicknesses come from God's hand. Business problems come from God's hand. God is active in the world. He is doing things that you have enemies does not always guarantee that God is angry. We started with that. But it can mean that. And God can use that as a means of grace. A means of grace. You have heard me correctly. When bad things happen to God's people, when the hostility of the world breaks in upon us, it may be God himself treating us like children, treating us like part of the family, treating us like children that need discipline to be raised. It may be the very hand of God's goodness to raise us up. David has been brought to the point where he looks at God and says, remember my weakness, remember my frailty, remember that I am mortal. Uh, There is no words of pride now, and pride is the essence of sin. David has been broken down by God's providence, and God is being to him a father. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says to the congregation that Hebrews was written to. This is verse somewhere uh, 3 through 13 of chapter 12. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. And at this point, the writer of Hebrews is going to quote the Proverbs. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God is dealing with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we have paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, May not have been, but that's how it seemed to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Is it good that David has been surrounded by foes and brought to fearing for his life and death? Yeah, sure is. 
Oh Lord, I remember you, and I remember the covenant we are in. Oh Lord, I, I have come to see my weakness. I have come to realize the need for your strength. I am driven to you. And then as the psalm comes to an end, uh, in the same verses that talk so much about enemies, they also talk about absolute assurance. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for, meaning because, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping, the Lord has heard my supplication, the Lord will receive my prayer. We start off with the psalmist in penitence, knowing his need for God's grace and crying out for it. We end with the psalmist being absolutely assured that God will be merciful to him, hear his prayer, answer him, and deliver him. What foundation does David have to make this turn? We have asked the question, what is it that has brought David to know that God is displeased? Now we really need to ask the question, uh, what authority does David have to make such a bold statement? Well, the authority is the fact that God has made certain promises. In Psalm 32, verse 3 through 5, This is what David will say elsewhere concerning how God works. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality turned into the drought of summer. And there the psalmist says, Selah. Think about that. Consider it. But then he moves into another section, and there'll be a Selah at the end of that. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Stop and think of that. Now what is the basis of these promises? Well, the apostle takes up Psalm 35 and quotes it. And in chapter 4 of Romans, he is talking to us about Jesus Christ. He is talking about all the promises God has made Since the Garden of Eden, where he has promised that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, what promises can we lay hold of in those promises? This is what the apostle says. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. He wasn't, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Why can the psalmist say with absolute assurity, I have cried out to God, I have cried in my need, I have cried a sinner, and I have asked for his grace, and he has given it to me. It is because he has promised those in Jesus Christ, in the promise of salvation, those who are in his covenant in Christ, that is their inheritance in the covenant. Though we will struggle with sin all our lives, and we may find God slapping us, we may find God allowing our adversaries to rise up, to be hostile, to attack us, which in conversation with someone this morning, they pointed out, make sure they realize you're not saying you should go along with them, heaven forbid, they hate you because of God. But God may let them rise up and hurt you because God is stopping you in, their, in your steps. He is bringing you to penitence, which is a good thing. He is bringing you to a sense of your sin. He is bringing you to a sense of your weakness. He is bringing you to the Lord Christ and to his promises. And thanks be to God, it is the assured promise of the covenant believer in Jesus Christ, if you cry, O Lord, be merciful... God will be merciful because of Jesus Christ.